and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I wanted to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. If you like today's show, we would really appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us as we continue to try to expand the reach of the podcast. Also, share this. Share it on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, wherever it is your social. Once again, a lot of people have found us from people putting stuff out on social media. Thank you all for your continued support. And one last kind of big, little bit big ask. My new book, Shift Your Mind, is now available for pre-order. The book breaks down nine mental shifts to help you thrive in preparation and performance. It took me about four years to write the book. It was difficult. It was challenging, but I'm really excited with how it turned out and the ability to share it with all of you. So if you're interested in pre-ordering the book for yourself, you can do so at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and IndieBound, or wherever it is you get your books. Also, if you're interested in buying a book order of at least 20 or more copies, we've created a special offer that includes a shout out on this podcast, which we're about to get to. It also includes an hour-long Zoom call with myself to discuss the book and a mention on social media. So once again, the book is called Shift Your Mind. You can learn more about it at strongskills.co slash book. Once again, that's strongskills.co slash book. And excited for you all to read about it and tell me how you're using it and learning about how you're shifting your mind. Uh, Thank you all for your continued support. And a special shout out to those of you that have already purchased bulk orders. So thanks to these people. If you're interested, once again, just take a picture of your bulk order and send it to me and we'll get the hour long Zoom call and the shout out and the social media stuff squared away. So today we're going to shout out my good friend, Drew Carr. Drew is an amazing private wealth manager. You can learn about him at dcar.bbt scottstringfellow.com that's dcard.bbt scottstringfellow.com drew bought these for his team and, and some of his clients so looking forward to present to them 
He is just an amazing human being and really grateful to know him. David Greenberg also bought 25 copies. Uh, David works at JMI, which invests in software companies with proven business models, rich intellectual property, high recurring revenue, and long-term growth potential. So uh, David is a brilliant guy and just, once again, appreciate your support. And then lastly, I'm just going to shout out Ed Peskowitz for buying a bulk order as well. Uh, I've known Ed my whole life and it just means a lot to have his support with the book. So appreciate all of you and and thanks again for everyone's support in uh, supporting the book. So thank you all very much. Now to today's guest. I was connected with Jay Triano through a mutual friend, uh, Cody Royal, and Cody is a past podcast guest. I'm just really grateful for Cody. He's a thought leader. He's an amazing coach, and he thinks about culture and leadership 24-7. We text all the time, and Cody put together a group that involved myself and Jay, and I had known about Jay because he was the head coach with the Toronto Raptors and the Phoenix Suns and has been in the NBA for a long time and is just a very well-respected guy, but what I was blown away by when it came to Jay was his curiosity, and so we were on a call together, and within the first 20 minutes of a call, he was just peppering me with questions. He is infinitely curious, especially when it comes to the mental side of performance. And I've learned a ton from him in the short time I've gotten to know him, but he is a lifelong learner. Even though he's reached the highest levels of his profession, he continues to grow, develop, and learn. And so that really is what caught my attention and caught my ears and uh, made me curious to learn more from him and sort of flip the microphone around and spend some time learning about what he's learned over the years. So you're going to love this conversation with Jay. As I said, he's super curious and has learned a ton throughout his career and has been with some of the best performers in the world and had an up-close seat and helped them develop as well. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Coach Jay Triano. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We got connected by Cody Royal, who uh, the two of us have gotten to be involved with some stuff with Cody. And yeah, he's just such a, a, a wise guy and he's such a thoughtful human being. And I love how he uses vocabulary and how intentional he is with his words. And we actually like found each other on Twitter. So the power of Twitter, I think uh, Twitter has some downsides, but it also has some positives. If you're looking in the right places, you can find some good stuff out of Twitter. And uh, he put us together with another, with a group of people. And uh, the very first conversation, I was just kind of blown away blown away by your curiosity, your interest in the mental side of performance. And so I'm, I'm excited to chat with you today and learn more about your journey and your mindset and how you think about coaching and, and playing as well. Yeah. It, you know, it, the mental part of the game is something, you know, obviously we all compete and we're physical and stuff like that, but the mental part of the game to me, and I think I learned this more as a coach is so untapped uh, compared to the, the tactics and the, and the athleticism and everything that we work on on a daily basis. And I don't think we work on the mental part of the game enough. And um, my best experiences as a player and as a coach have been when I had a uh, quote sports psychologist. Uh, um, I don't know if he, that was his exact title, but that's what he, we, we put him down as to get into all of our venues. Um, but in both cases, I thought that that person brought enough to the team to take us over the edge. And in 1983, when Canada upset the United States with Charles Barkley and Carl Malone and everything on the U.S. team, it was a huge upset for Canada. It was the biggest win in, 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 in uh, basketball history in our country. And, uh, you know, we had a sports psychologist that worked with us on a daily basis, and he had us 
you know, together and as a unit. And then the same thing happened at the Olympics in 2000. Uh, I, I brought a guy in from Simon Fraser University by the name of David Cox. And he was in the, he was in the psychology department and he worked with, with, with teams. And I said, well, who have you worked with? And he listed, the, he, he worked with the wrestling team. And he said, but the guys that bought into what I do, and he listed them, they all won medals at the Olympics. And I was just like, well, then why are we not using you? And we brought him and he went to Sydney, Australia with us. And sure enough, he gets there and every other athlete wants to use him when he's there. Uh, because we, I think as athletes, we all compete to the highest level, but I don't know if we train our brain enough. 1983, as a player, what were some things that, that helped you perform that that, he, that that sports psych brought to the table? The biggest thing for us, and this is a little bit of my history growing up in Canada and not having a lot of basketball uh, available to play games. So I played in my driveway and I played in an empty gym because the majority of Canadians, let's face it, they play hockey. And at that age growing up, everybody wanted to play street hockey. When I'm I, my dad was a basketball coach. I wanted to be in the gym. So I went to an empty gym or outdoor court. And the biggest thing that they did was he reinforced the visualization aspect of the game for me. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because for the longest period of time, I would visualize defenders running at me and me having to make a move. Um, the craziest thing about all this was our relaxation and training our minds to wind down and then be on the same page as we got back going. And I'll never forget not being able to sleep the night before we played against the Americans and, you know, tossing, turning, how are we going to beat this team? Uh, these guys are all going to be great pros and, and so on. And we're just a bunch of kids from Canada. And, you know, you kind of drift in and out, but I was visualizing things and, I, and, you know, he always taught us to visualize positive, see the positive. And the one thing I, I in one of my dreams, I saw a sign that said miracle on wood. And this is like three years removed from miracle on ice. And I just thought, Oh, that's really cool. So before we play in the semifinal games, both teams march through the middle tunnel and one team goes left and one team goes right. And we line up across the free throw lines. And as I turn left, the fans in Canada were going crazy. They were cheering like crazy for us. And a guy jumped out in front and he held up a sign that said, Miracle on Wood. And I just went, whoa, this is eerie. This is, this is wild. And it just kind of put in my mind, like, okay, anything can happen. This is, I dreamed this. And then, of course, you dream about winning games. And we ended up winning that game. You mentioned dad was a, was a basketball coach. Was he into psychology? Was he into any of those parts? And, and what was the dynamic like with him as a basketball coach and growing up with that? Well, I think the biggest thing was I was around the game all the time and was able to discuss with somebody, you know, what was going on in the game. But, you know, back then, I mean, we didn't think sports psychology was, was something that, and I still think to today to a fault, is we expect the coach to be that guy as well. And so, sure, you're going to figure out how to get guys motivated, how to get guys fired up, how to get guys back on track, how you're going to focus on the process. Um, and so when you do all that, I think then you're a basketball coach, but I think it goes beyond that, and I don't think we tap that. And to this day, I still think we put too much pressure on coaches to, be, to help train the minds as much as, as they do. And coaches do a great job of it but we, we still put too much pressure on our coaches to try to train the minds of our great athletes. 
You know what's interesting about what you're talking about? So everybody likes to compare the sports psychology to strength and conditioning. And they say, well, you know, in the 60s and 70s, they didn't have strength coaches. And, you know, then it evolved. And now you have this team of, of strength coaches and therapists, physical therapists and all this sort of stuff. And I always say, I, I think actually a better comparison is analytics. Um, and, and here's like my thinking around it. It's exactly what you were talking about, which is coaches were always using stats. Like it's not, you know, you always got the little one sheet of all the stats, points, rebounds, assists, turnovers, plus my, you would always get that at halftime or in between quarter, even timeouts. Like statistics were always a part of coaching and you had to be aware of statistics and you had to know about it. But analytics was something completely different. It took it to another stratosphere. And so coaches were always using analytics, but to get a kid from MIT who studied analytics and could look at the game differently and then think about how to leverage what's useful and what's not useful so that a coach could just do their job and do it well, the analytics is just data that can be helpful to perform better. And I think the mistake that people make, to your point about sports psychology, is like, of course, you know, you know, a breath at the free throw line is something that you probably did instinctively as a, as a kid, but how do you actually teach it? How do you train it? How do you actually work with somebody? You know, that's an art and a science. And for, for people in my world, like that's what we think about every single day and every moment. And my best work is actually in collaboration with coaches. And so that we actually are using the same language and we're, we're thinking similarly. And I think analytics works the same way when a head coach has enough to know, but not too much to, to overload themselves. They're in a really good spot. So I don't know if that makes sense to you or how you're, how you yeah. think about that. No, that's for sure. And, and like I said, the best experiences and as a coach, you want to have control. I remember going to the Olympics and our, and our, our sports psychologist saying, how long is practice today? And I said, it's two hours. He goes, well, how long do I get? And I'm going, what do you mean? No, this is the time that we're on the floor. He goes, I know, but I need some time. He goes, can we do it when I get back? And he was honestly fighting, like you're saying, every day to, to, to educate, to teach. And Brian, you know, like, like today, I think the need is even greater. I mean, so many kids with attention deficit and uh, being on their phones all the time, they get caught up. Their minds are everywhere except on focus and except locked in. You know, you, you talked uh, a, a little bit about uh, the, the free throw, and, and that's um, in the Olympic before we got to the Olympics, um, our sports psychologist at the time, he was a base, he was a tennis guy. And he was like, uh, so every, it was, it was interesting for us because every analogy in the basketball game, he turned it back to tennis and he talked about the, the great tennis players and, and what they would, they could do and their mental preparation. Um, and, and he, he said to us, he goes, I don't understand the free throw. He goes, because that shot is the same all the time. The basket is 10 feet high. You're standing 15 feet away. Um, you've got all the time in the world to line it up and everything. And he goes, in tennis, before a guy re uh, signals that he's ready to receive the serve, he takes a forehand practice and a backhand practice against nothing, just physically rehearsing the motion. And I remember him telling our guys, and our guys were looking at him, go, he goes, why would you not physically rehearse the free throw? And sure enough, uh, you know, my best player at the time, Steve Nash, is looking at him going, and then the next day we have a game and Steve Nash is up on the free throw line and he tells the referee, don't give me the ball. And he practices the free throw, physically rehearsed it. 
exactly how he wants to do it, holding his follow through, elbow straight, everything. And uh, he, he, he made the shot and obviously, and then from that point on, he took it back to the NBA and uh, was the number one free throw shooter in the NBA for the rest of his career, shooting over 95%. So um, again, just the little things that you can learn from different people. Uh, I, you know, my big thing is, is focusing on process over the outcome. I think we get so caught up in the, uh, trying to win and, and trying to, uh, and how you react when you don't win and how you react to failure and so on. And I think that to me is like one of the big things. And, Guys today have so many people in their ears uh, talking to them and uh, so many outside distractions. It's, it's tough to stay locked in and stay focused on the process. You mentioned Steve Nash. There's actually a cool article that talked about him doing that routine. And then they did research on if a player makes their first free throw, they're more likely to make their second. And it sort of backed up this idea that when Nash is taking that free throw, he's actually seen himself make that first free Absolutely. throw. So then he's already on to the next one, which is kind of a cool way to think about it. What made Steve special? You got to spend time being around him. I, I, like when I, when I, from the outside looking in, he's one of the more fascinating humans to play yeah. basketball. Um, and obviously two-time MVP. And, um, but, you know, just watching the way he played, uh, his leadership, like what, what was the thing that made him a Hall of Famer? A competitive drive and belief in himself. Uh, I, I think, he, you know, he is so competitive. I don't think in all the times that I coached him, uh, and, and it's not just the basketball games, but in, in practice, he had to win the set of lines at the end of a drill. He had, we, we'd take a day off and we'd go golfing and he had to win that. I mean, I, I'll never forget one day we was like, I said, like, these guys are practicing too hard and uh, we need to get their minds out, but we want a team build. Let's go. They'll be in their gear, but we'll pull up to the golf course and we'll have all the carts ready and everything. We'll golf. And we, we did that and Steve Nash wins and he shoots one over par. And I was like, man, those were like rental clubs. He goes, yeah, and I haven't played in a year. But it's, it's like he has that, a great gift, obviously, being a great athlete, um, but just that belief in himself. Like, I, I, I think I shared with you uh, privately that, you know, in our qualifications to get to the Olympics, we were playing in Puerto Rico against Puerto Rico, and we're having this meeting with our sports psych and all of our coaches, and we're going, it's going to be crazy in there. Like it's going to be so loud. They bang on drums, they smoke in the arena and it's just going to be chants and songs the whole time. How are we going to focus? And, and we practiced with loud music in an overheated gym uh, in, in Toronto just to get accustomed to that. But I, I, I remember sitting there and Steve was like, coach, we're good. And I said, I, I think so, but I don't know how, if we're going to score enough points. Because this team, you know, they're, they're pretty good. And we can get this and this and this. And I said, you got to have to get 25. And he goes, okay. And he'd been averaging 10. Like he'd been get, get, scoring 10 points and getting 10 assists and setting everybody up. And, and I said, but I think you're going to have to score a lot more tonight. You're going to probably have to get 25. And he gets 27 and we qualify for the Olympics. I mean, it's just like, it was like, thing. like people told him, you're six foot one and you're a white kid from Victoria, Canada. There's no chance you're going to be an MVP in the NBA. You're not even going to play in the NBA. And he's just like, oh, you tell me I can't do something. I'm going to work so hard that I'm going to eventually overcome and I'm going to do it. Yeah, there's a couple things that are interesting. First of all, I remember him playing his rookie year and being like, this dude, this dude can't play at this level. Like, I remember watching it and being like, this guy, he's, he's, not, he's not good enough. And now I was young. I don't know how old I was. But uh, 
like it was not a seamless transition from Santa Clara to the NBA, um, which is interesting. And then, and so people sometimes forget that. And I think sometimes, especially with, with point guards, Chauncey Billups had a rough transition coming into the NBA. We, we live in a world today that wants to anoint people as soon as they get there. And sometimes they don't give them enough space and time to, to develop. And so I think about those two guys as guys who, who continue to grow, develop super IQ, smart, um, and then the other thing with Nash that I think gets lost, and it's the same thing with Steph Curry, because of their frame, people think they're not amazing athletes. And like your story about Nash picking up a golf club or his soccer prowess, you know, Steph Curry goes out and can compete with pro golfers. Like there's so much more that goes into athleticism than the jumping high, like the way that Nash would contort his body and move and, and get into space and um, his, his body control and his hand-eye coordination. It, it, it's sick. And same with Steph. I mean, Steph, it, the things that Steph can do are incredible. It's, it's interesting with Steve too. And I know Steph is such a great athlete at, at a variety of things, but um, with Steve, I mean, he, he, a lot of times he had a back issue and um, he worked in Vancouver with a guy um, that really stabilized his core and made sure that his core strength was, was had to, it had to be perfect. Otherwise his back was going to be an issue. And um, I, again, on the way to the Olympics, we stopped in Hong Kong for an exhibition game and we had an hour break and the guys went to a gym. We rented out this gym and we moved all the workers out of this gym. And we coaches went for a meeting and we came back to see if they had finished lifting weights. And the, the kids were like around this huge building. We're like seven, eight deep peeking in, watching Steve Nash work out. Now, he was, a, he was an NBA player at the time, but he wasn't an MVP at the time. And they were just amazed, and they were all writing notes. And I was like, what are they doing? And, you know, you know the, uh, the Swedish balls that people, you know, some people sit on them in their office, and some people kneel on them. Steve was standing on the Swedish ball playing catch with our manager and the ball was not moving an inch. He was just like so strong through the core. And a lot of people say that that's why he could stop and go left and go right and spin and never be out of control, never be off balance. But you're right. There's a, there's a lot of things that go into being a great athlete and uh, it doesn't have to be whether he dunked the ball, which he never did in his career and was an MVP. Um, and I think Steph's probably in the same boat, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, he was able to, you know, twist and contort, as you say, uh, effortlessly and without losing balance because of his great uh, core strength. You mentioned self-belief as something like he believed in himself, even when others probably didn't, including myself when he came into the NBA. And for Steph Curry, you can kind of understand where that might come from having a dad that excelled in the NBA. For Steve, any idea where that belief came from that he belonged and not just belonged, but he could, you know, be such an impact player? He was a, he was a great athlete in every sport. And I think um, maybe growing up in Victoria, British Columbia, I mean, the provincial championships equivalent to the state championships. Uh, you know, I recruited him when he was in the 10th grade and to make sure I covered all my bases, I went and watched him play soccer and I went and watched him play rugby and I went and watched him play basketball. When he was a senior in high school, he was the MVP of the BC High School Boys Basketball Tournament. He was the MVP of the, uh, the provincial soccer tournament and is the MVP of the rugby. He's, he always had a, a knack of being better than everybody else. And when you look at his frame, you go, how and why? But I think it was just a belief in that. And, it, and I think he just kept saying, like, you know, when, even when he went to Santa Clara, dribbling around on campus with a tennis ball, like there was a belief that I can do whatever I want 
And I don't know where that comes from. I know his dad was a professional soccer player, uh, but he had a lot of success as a, as a youngster growing up and, and, and a, a mental toughness too. All right, so now we're connecting the dots with you and him. Neither of you picking up a hockey stick. What's that all about? Why, why didn't you pick up a hockey stick? I did. I played hockey. I played, I played hockey until I think I was 13 and hit a growth spurt. And I grew like five inches one summer. And the next year I went back on the ice and, man, I'd get hit and I'd, be, I'd flop and I'd fall all over the place. And I, I just just like, man, I got to take advantage of the five-inch growth spurt instead of picking myself up up, up the ice all the time. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's a thing to do in Canada. My brother, my brother was a professional hockey player. He played for 17 years. So, uh, you know, he didn't have that growth spurt. And I had a growth spurt and allowed me to play basketball, but he, he, he didn't and stayed and played, played professional hockey. Why do you think Canada has fallen in love with basketball? It seems like in the last 10, 15 years, there's just been an influx of Canadians, uh, certainly in the NBA, but also you see the Raptors and you see, uh, I, I've spent time in Toronto and they love the Raptors even before they won the championship. Yeah. Um, why, why do you think basketball has had their own growth spurt as it relates to Canada and Toronto? I think, I think there's two things. Uh, actually, I'll say three things uh, that were um, the, that were the number were the main reasons. Number one, the, the game of basketball came to Canada with the Vancouver Grizzlies and the Toronto Raptors. And that meant that kids could watch it all the time and they could, you know, be interested in the game. And for a chain for, instead of watching a team, you had your own team, you had your own players that you could follow and you could, you could like the sport or you could turn it off, but if, either way, it was going to still be in front of you. Vince Carter, was a was a, a highlight so even if you didn't like basketball you love to watch Vince Carter so that turned kids on and, and kids that couldn't afford the hockey equipment kids who couldn't afford ice time they could always find a basketball in a hoop somewhere and they could pretend that they were Vince Carter so I think the NBA coming number one Vince Carter providing an interest level that was second to none and then Steve Nash showing that not only do, can we sit back and watch this, we can excel at it as well. And we can move to where I can be the MVP. So Steve created the belief. And as soon as that opened the door, it's like that, you know, running the, the four minute mile, no one could do it. And then when one person did it, everybody's like, oh, okay. And then everybody started doing it. And now it's a, a common occurrence. Uh, I, think, I think it was the same thing with basketball. Steve paved the way and others go, we, we can play in the NBA. We can get this done. And for you, you're 13 years old. You're falling over your body with, with skates on. So it sounds like you, you dedicate yourself to a sport where you don't have to be on skates and, and you know, yeah. can, can play ball. Talk about your journey and, and, and what, what transpired for you from the time you're 13 and, and, and take, us, take us a little through your career. Well, I, I think, you know, I always say that one of, the, one of my benefits was growing up in Niagara Falls, Ontario, uh, you know, a couple hundred yards across the border from Niagara Falls, New York. And I went and saw a game when I was in the 11th grade. And, you know, I was a high school player and pretty good high school player. Um, but I saw a game that night uh, where Canada played against Niagara University. And Frank Layden was coaching Niagara University at the time. But Canada was getting ready for the 1976 Olympics. And when I watched that game, there was something that happened. It was my love for basketball, but Canada ended up winning the game. It was a close game. And I remember them playing the national anthem after the game and the players lining up across the free throw line and the national anthem playing. And they had to play O Canada because the Canadian team won. And 
I just remember the real sense of pride that night. Like, wow, this is really cool. And that kind of lit the fire for me. I was like, what do I have to do to get on that team? And uh, I kept the program from that game. And uh, I kept notes and I kept start, I started telling people. I started telling me, I'm going to play on this team one day. I'm going to play on this team one day. And I had teachers that were like, well, you're not a good enough student to get to university. And all those guys that you watch, they play at university. So you're right. So I started studying more. I started doing things like that. And people would say, well, at six foot four, you're a forward in high school, but you're going to have to be a guard. So you better learn how to handle the ball. You better become a great shooter. I wrote everything down that people would tell me. And I started doing it over and over and over again. Um, where would you write it, Jay? You said I would write on, on scrap pieces of paper, and I had a lot of it written in that program. Like, uh, you know, I kept that program by my nightstand. So I would go to bed every night and go, "What did I do today to take me closer to that goal?" And when I when I finally got, you know, I got I got better, obviously, and I got my grades going and everything. Um, but I, I got people called me and wanted to go to school and Simon Fraser university came to visit. And I told the coach there, I said, I'm coming. He said, well, I have to kind of recruit you. And I said, no, I'm coming. He says, well, I know a bunch of other schools want you. And I said, yeah, but I, I said, and I, and my dad was there. He said, show them. And I showed him the program that I had beside my nightstand. And I said, if you look at this program, three of the players went to your school. So you must be doing something right. And I want to be part of that. So that's why I went to Simon Fraser. They had placed more players on, Canadian, on the Canadian national team than anybody at the time. And I remember their names to this day. And I was like, I'm, I want to be on that team. So I went there and I followed those guys around. And they were my university teammates and my heroes. And I was going to be just like them. And uh, sure enough, I, you know, things worked out real well for me where, you know, I got there. And I, I made – it's a, it's a long story. I don't want to bore you. But uh, my first tryout with the Canadian national team was horrible. Like I, I got invited and I was like so keen on going, but I was the worst. I was like, I couldn't make a shot. I guess I was nervous. I was overthinking things, whatever. And um, the coach at the end of the, of the, of the trials, so there were 50 kids there, said, here are the 12 names. And he listed the 12 people that, that were going. And my name was the 12th name. And I, I, I had friends that were looking going, I, I don't know how that happened. How did that happen? And the next day, Coach, he, he kind of said, well, this is the team that's going to travel around the world. And he says, we didn't take the – just so you all know, we didn't take the 12 best players. He goes, because that's not what a team is. He says, what we did is he says, we took the first five guys will start. The second five will be their backups. Number 11 and number 12 won't get in. But what we want them to do is if they work as hard as they did in the training camp, they will make our guys that are actually going to play better. So they're going to be practice players. And I was just like, you know, and it, it hurt me to hear that, but I know what I knew what my role was. I had to be the best practice player. And for two years, I sat on the bench for, for Team Canada, traveled around the world and was a practice player. And I would do everything. I would throw balls to guys. I would put my hand up and challenge. I would, I would play defense on guys. It's their game day. It's their shoot around. Uh, but for me, that was my only workout. So I'd run lanes and I'd, I'd, I'd be all over the place, diving on the floor, doing whatever. And I'd be the most positive guy on the bench. And they kept changing the 11th guy every time we'd go on a trip. And I kept saying, can I move up? And they said, no, nah, you're doing a great job. Players love you. you he goes, I give them shit uh, when they come off the floor. You give them a glass of water and a pat on the back. You said, you're, you're great for this team. And, you know, 
that's that's how I started on the Canadian national team. And then two guys get hurt, and I have to play, and I become the leading scorer within a year. And, I pause, and, pause right there. Okay, yeah. so I want to go right there. So that was what I was wondering. So I have this conversation with coaches all the time as far as creating roles, getting role clarity, but you don't want to give role clarity and stifle somebody's potential to grow and develop. And so this is where it gets tricky, which is they say to you, Hey, we need you to be a towel waiver, be the 12th guy on the team. But then something happens. How did you have the mindset, the belief to go from being a towel waiver to being the leading scorer in a year? What inside of you allowed you to do that? Honestly, Brian, I don't know. And I think a lot of it was routine and belief in myself. And I say routine because I always dreamed that if somebody does get hurt, I better be ready. So instead of not playing in games, I'm going to run the floor. And I mean, I remember guys like, come on, calm down, man. It's a game day. Not for me. You know, and I would like throw them passes all the time. During games, and this is to me like the, the biggest thing, I, I had Jack Donahue said, I need you to sit beside me and keep track of everything that we run offensively and put a little two beside it if we score and put an X if we don't. And I, I, I sat there and I, so I had to pay attention to what was going on in the game. So we'd run a play called high post and I'd put a little check mark or a two if we scored and an X if we didn't. And then I remember we're, we're, we're winning by 30 points in Argentina. And uh, he, he looks down the bench and he goes, Triano. And I jumped up and I ripped off my sweats. And I said, yes, coach. He goes, no, 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 no. Sit down. How are we doing in high post? I said, oh, we're three for four. Stay with it. So he'd yell, stay with high post. And he'd yell it out there. And that was the whole thing. And like I said, then two years later, and so I had to pay attention. I knew every play. Two years later, we're at the Olympic qualifying tournament in 1980 in, in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, our starting guard uh, takes, a, takes a charge on, a, on a, a big Cuban and he fractured his ribs. His knee went into his rib cage and he fractures his ribs and he's out, of the, he's out of the tournament. His backup goes in and on the very next play, the kids who were supposed to wipe up the floor didn't get the wet spot. And the, his backup comes and slips on the floor and blows out his knee. And I remember Jack Donahue looked down the bench and he said, Triano. And I looked at him and I said, stay with high post. It's Three really for four. <laughs> he goes, no, you're going in. And, and I, I had a minute to talk to him as I was shaking. I mean, here we are. This isn't just a game. This is the Olympic qualifier. And I'm walking to the score stand when he's got his arm around me and he goes, do what you do in practice every single day. And I had to... Luckily, I knew every play. Luckily, I ran all those sets of line because I, not only did I have to play the rest of that game, I had to play 40 minutes for the rest of the tournament because you can't bring players in. So now what, what was it that made me think that I better stay in great shape? What was it that made me think that every game I better pay attention to every play call so that I know what we're trying to do offensively? Uh, and, you know, the big thing for, at the end of all that was after we qualified, um, we were, in, we were informed that there was a boycott and that we would not be going to the Olympics because in 1980, Russia was invading Afghanistan and Canada and the United States were not going to send their athletes to the games in Moscow. Um, and I remember being 19 years old and going, man, this sucks. And, and the, the coach saying to me, he said, don't get fat. And I said, don't get fat. I'm not, I mean, I'm not fat. I'm not going to get fat. He goes, no, I don't mean, I mean mentally. Don't forget how you got to where you are right now. Um, be the same person as far as a hard worker, 
and a nice guy who continues to give people a towel and a glass of water and encouragement. Uh, don't stop running those extra sets of lines and don't stop keeping notes on what it's going to take offensively. And he, he said, I don't have any problem with you um, moving forward. And, and I ended up becoming the captain and playing in the next two Olympics for Canada. But he said, but I do have to go into that room and tell eight or nine guys that their career and their chance of going to the Olympics is over. He says, luckily you're young enough, but don't get fat. Don't forget how you got where you are. Man, there's so much to unpack there. I'm thinking about Patty Mills, who also, like Steve Nash, played in a similar conference and went to St. Mary's from a foreign land, came from Australia, and then gets to the Spurs and he becomes a towel waver. Literally, he's there's articles written about him in his prowess and weaving a towel on the bench and having all these movements he can do as a towel waver. And then Tony Parker ends up, you know, aging out and, and having to retire and patty mills all of a sudden is a starting point guard on that team and all of a sudden he can't be a towel waiver anymore now he needs to be a starting point guard on a team that's been the best organization in basketball for the last 20 years or what have you and then i'm also thinking of kobe bryant right now because kobe i heard him interviewed once and he said that the person asked him what's the best compliment someone can give you and he said that i'm a blue collar worker which I was shocked to hear. I thought he was going to say that I'm one of the best players ever, or I'm a scorer, or I'm a killer, whatever. He said, no, I'm a blue collar worker. And he's like, really? And he's like, yeah. He goes, I want, I have the mindset that I'm the 12th or 13th guy on the, on the team. And I always want to have that mindset and work as if I'm the 12th or 13th guy. And if I take that approach, I think that'll adhere to some good results. The thing that's interesting though, about both Patty Mills and Kobe who are very different from all outside external accounts without knowing either of those guys the ability to shift your mind in preparation and performance. Uh, you know, Kobe would be very curious and ask questions. People that were around him said he'd always be asking, why do I need to do this? And just lever leverage curiosity, but then get between the lines. And he was not asking questions. He was, it was all comments. It was all F you. It was Mamba mentality. And then you see someone like Patty Mills, who people rave about his ability to be a teammate and, and, curious and learn but then you see patty play and he, he does he have this fearlessness to him only being 5'11 or whatnot uh and, and and playing at the highest level uh in basketball and so as i'm hearing you talk i'm hearing this capacity to shift from like, hey i'm still gonna work my ass off like i'm the 12th guy but when i get on the floor i need to now be the guy is there anything you would do on game day to make sure that you had a fearless mind or you talk about steve nash's utter belief in himself. Steve Nash also would turn the ball over four, four times a game. I mean, people forget, like he, he would also turn the ball over. So what did you do to make sure that your mindset was where it needed to be on game day and when you're between the lines competing? I think, I think the biggest thing, and I don't know if there's one thing you can do. I, I think there's reminders and there's, there's check, checks that you have to make with yourself. But I think it's something that's built up over time. I mean, it, you don't all of a sudden go into a game and go, oh, I'm confident. I'm confident as hell I can do this or today's the day I'm going to be confident. You don't do that. I think it's a, it's a personality thing. And I think number one, I think the hard, hard work and the effort that you put in creates a belief in yourself. Um, I say that because I, I, you know, you know, Kobe wants to be that blue collar guy. Well, I, I, I witnessed that when I was with the USA team, he was the hardest worker on that team amongst all the stars. He was the hardest workers. And, and then the other guys started to follow him because of it. Steve Nash was the same way. I felt like I was the same. Like I, I knew when I went into training camp, I've trained harder than anybody else. I deserve to be where I am. And I think, I don't understand why more people can't wave the towel and be that person on the bench because 
I valued it as a guy that wanted support from my bench and I gave it as well. And I just don't get where the, some guys would be, well, that's beneath me. Uh, and I think it's how you treat not just your teammates, but how you treat the human population in general. You treat everybody the same. You treat people with respect and you put yourself in other people's shoes. And this is what I would want. This is what I would do. And I think, especially in today's world, this is what, you know, we're, we've got a lot of people that think they're better than others. And let's just all be the same and let's work hard and, and compete. For me, the framework is preparation. Let's be humble. Uh, what do we need to do to get better and improve? And in performance, actually have arrogance. And when I say arrogant, I say it in the sense of like this utter self-belief that you have in yourself. This, this you know, you missed your first five shots. You're, you're, you're still believing that you can, you can hit the next one. You turn the ball over. Okay, I'm, I'm a point guard. That's going to happen. I'm going to keep with it. Like this, this inner, I call it inner arrogance, but this, it's one step up above confidence because you've earned it with humility. You've already put in the humble preparation. So now let go. And then the other thing I say is, um, you know, selfish in preparation, go get the shots up, go do all the things, you know, it takes some selfishness to take care of yourself and then be selfless in performance. And so the mistake I think we make is saying you need to be one way all the time instead of shifting in preparation and performance. And Oh, by the way, to your point earlier, we also need to practice our performance mind. So when your coach says, Hey, I just do what you do in practice. It's because you were getting reps in your performance mind there's a time to be perfectionistic and work on form shooting and work on, on footwork that's in preparation. But when you're performing, you need to be adaptable, adjustable, just find a way. And so for me, like my book is all about this. I'll send it to you so you can take a look at it, but this ability to shift in preparation and performance, I think doesn't get talked about enough. Instead, we just say, Oh, you know, just be uncomfortable, like go towards discomfort. It's like, well, on game day, you should actually go towards comfort. Like, what do you need to do to get as comfortable as possible? What are you thinking about during the national anthem? How are you stretching? What are you eating? Get yourself comfortable. Like fear. People say fear is bad. I'm like, no, when you're preparing, you need to have some fear. Like we're not going to lose. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to watch film. I'm going to get reps. I'm going to eat a certain way. But when you get between the lines, that's when you need to be fearless. And that's when you need to let go of the fear. So I could go on and on. This is something oh. I, I just, I, I'm pretty big on. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. And I, I, I think, uh, you know, we break it down a little bit like guys that are great shooters have that unbelievable confidence and belief. Now they put in the time and they put in the practice, but they're also in the game and, and, and they're in that fear moment like you're talking about. And, I, you know, I've, some guys that I've coached and some guys that I play with, I, I, I'll be like, man, you're like, oh, for four. He goes, yeah, that means I'm going to make the next four because I'm a 50% shooter at, you know, at best or at worst, I'm going to, I'm going to make the next ones. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot of, to our guys because, you know, some people can't handle that. And this goes back to what, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the process over the outcome, because, you know, some guys will miss two or three and they'll start hanging their head and their shoulders will drop. And then you can't perform because you've lost the physical stature that you need to be able to compete. Whereas others, you can tell by the way that they walk that missing two or three doesn't affect them at all. They're still back shoulders up and ready to go. But if you have to correct your posture before you correct your form, then you're going to be in a heap of trouble. But the great ones, they walk with that arrogance. They walk with that cockiness and that fear, like, but I'm, but I'm here for battle. And they walk straight up in the heaven. You mentioned your brother played 17 years professional hockey. Do you have other siblings as well? I have a, I have a sister who didn't really get into sports a whole lot. What do you think you and your brother had in common to, to be able to play at the level you were able to play at? Um, 
And is there anything instilled values wise from your parents that came that you think gave you guys an advantage? I, I think there was a, there was a competitiveness. Uh, you know, my dad was a basketball player, as I mentioned, and, and a basketball coach. Um, he played in the uh, 1959 Pan American games against Oscar Robertson and Jerry West, which was kind of cool. Um, uh, he represented Canada and kind of neat that 20 years later, I would play in the Pan American games as well. Uh, but I, I think being around an athletic family, but I think having a brother too really helped. Like we would compete everything we did. And there was a, there was a four or five year age gap between us, but our parents would go out and we'd put, we'd put on the boxing gloves and we'd mark off the front lawn, you know, in a ring and we'd try to beat each other. And we would play all these crazy games. Uh, we'd invent games. We we played hockey in the driveway where, you know, five balls lined up and you could take slap shots at that poor guy in net and let's see who wins. There was a competitiveness within both of us that, uh, and, and a gamesmanship where we would try to create some an environment where we could compete against each other. And it, it just happened that, you know, his success happened in hockey and I moved away to go to play uh, at university and he moved into another home to, as a junior hockey player and to become a good hockey player. So I don't know what it was. I mean, our, our parents were very supportive and obviously uh, competitive. When did you want to become a coach? When did that become clear for you? Uh, when I couldn't play anymore. I mean, I just love the game so much. I love the game as a player. And I, I think after uh, you know, my third Olympics in 1988, after we got back from Seoul, Korea, I was like, okay, um, you know, the, the boycott in, in, in the boycott in 1980 was a big thing because I couldn't see playing four more years or training for four more years for the next Olympics. It was just seemed like too distant a goal for me. And that's when I started playing football and, and played university football for a year. Um, and then I, I kind of got the drive and the aggression back to, to, to pursue basketball more. Uh, after 84, when we finished fourth and lost out on a medal in the, in the last seconds against Yugoslavia, uh, it, there was enough drive there and I found something to do where I could keep playing. I traveled wherever I could go. I played Istanbul, Turkey. I lived in Mexico. I drove from Vancouver to Seattle on a weekly basis to play pickup games. And I just loved the game so much. So when that all ended, I was just like, okay, what's going to happen? And fortunately, my, the school that I went to, Simon Fraser, uh, the coach was going to retire. And he said, why don't you be my assistant for a year and you can take over. And, and that's exactly what I did. I helped him while I, uh, while I kept playing a little bit. And then I, then I took over after I retired in 1988 and started coaching college basketball. And, and walk me through how you go from college basketball to the pros. <laughs> um, six years of college basketball. And then the Vancouver Grizzlies show up in Vancouver. And I was uh, actually applying to become the athletic director at the university where I could still coach. And there was an article in the newspaper that said I was down to the final two and had the other person's name. And Stu Jackson, who, who was the president and GM, called me and said, are you thinking about not coaching? And I said, no, I'm going to coach. And I was going to be the AD as well for a little while. He goes, okay, I just, if you were interested in not coaching, I'm, I might be interested in hiring you with the Grizzlies. I was like, Okay, well, what would that entail? And he said, <laughs> uh, you could be the director of community relations. You could be the radio broadcaster, the TV guy, whatever. And we could sit down and talk. So he said, we sat down and he put together a package that there's no way I could refuse. So my introduction to the NBA was as a um, somebody who could interact with all the players and, and, and 
uh, teach the Vancouver community about the game of basketball because I was already in that in that community, but I knew the NBA game, and then uh, call games on radio and TV and travel and understand what the NBA life was going to be like. Yeah. How'd you li- how'd you like that job? He, I, I loved it for a while just because it was unique and I was learning all the time and watching, but I was too competitive. I'm too competitive. Like you go home after a broadcast, you didn't win or lose. You go, what do you do? You go back to the hotel room and go, Oh, good job. You called a good game. No, I mean, to me, that's not winning or losing. So um, in the meantime, I had, I, I got, I was brought in as coach of the Canadian national team. Uh, and then when we went to the Sydney Olympics and we went five and two at the Olympics and beat, like the host Australians beat Yugoslavia, beat Russia. Uh, it was like, we beat Spain. Uh, it was like, okay, this guy can coach. And all of a sudden I started getting some interest and then moved to Toronto to be an assistant coach uh, with Lenny Wilkins uh, in the Toronto Raptors. Let's, we'll, we'll get to legendary coaches in a little bit. And Lenny Wilkins is certainly a legend. Being an assistant coach on the U.S. national team compared to being a head coach of the Canadian national team, Talk to me about the differences between those experiences. Oh, boy. Both, both incredibly thrilling experiences. Uh, uh, it was, um, you know, taking the, taking the Canadian team to the Olympics. So, you know, playing, playing in the Olympics like I did, it was a big thing for me because I always said, you know, as a coach, what do you want? And I said, I want to take 12 players to experience what I did. I mean, you know, we got to do all these crazy things to get there. But... Um, that was my whole thing. If I can share this experience with 12 young Canadian players, uh, and to this day, it's still one of the top things uh, on my list. But um, when things didn't go well with the Canadian team and, and, and Mike Krzyzewski called me, I was like, I remember going to the first meeting and it was Coach K, Jim Beheim, uh, Mike D'Antoni, and Nate McMillan sitting in the room. And I was going to be the coach of the select team. And I was just going, we sat and we talked for like two weeks straight about basketball. And I was like, and we had dinner every night. And I was just like, there's no way you could ever get this clinic. Like, cause these guys are open, they're down to earth. And I just remember going, this is one of the coolest things. Mike D'Antoni was not allowed to travel because um, of his back the one year. And they were like, well, you've been with us and you've coached the select team. And the select team was always the younger guys that weren't good enough to make it. But at the, at, you know, Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Love, and all those guys were on the select team. But eventually they moved up and they were like, and you know all these guys real well and you've had a good relationship with them over the summer. So we're going to move you up to be an assistant coach. And then going to the world championships uh, in Turkey in 2010. And it, to me, it was like going back because I played professional basketball in Turkey. So we were right in the city that, uh, that I lived in for a while. And it, was just, it was just an incredible experience being around those coaches and, and, and intense. I mean, you know, you don't want to make a mistake. You don't want to let anybody down. And, you know, you're, you're on, on task for, you know, four weeks solid and, and making sure that everything goes the right way. But it was a, a, a fantastic experience with some great people. What attributes make a Hall of Fame head coach? Uh, besides having great players, like I know coaching requires great players. Let's just push that to the side. But what are the attributes you've, you've witnessed or observed in, in sort of these legendary head coaches? I think, I think the legendary head coaches um, during the time that they're coaching could care less about whether they're hall of famers or not. You know, and I think that's, that right there is one of the things that makes them so unique. I think they're so locked into their team and their interpersonal relationships with their team and how you can strive to help these guys become better and more competitive daily and weekly and monthly and yearly um, that, 
it isn't until they're all retired. And I'm, I'm glad that the Hall of Fame happens when it does because it's a chance for them to look back and reflect. And re but I don't think there's anybody coaching in, you know, in the, in the here and now that goes, I want to be a Hall of Fame coacher. I, I think you're just so is that is that different? Is that different than those players? Like, uh, you know, you're mentioning Hall of Fame basketball players. Is it is it a different perspective and mindset that makes someone great as a player compared to great as a head coach? It might be in some cases because the players are are you know locked in, and you know, even as a player myself, you're you're, you're worried about you. You're worried about how you're going to go. When you're a coach, you're worried about 12 guys, and you're worried about that 12th guy and whether he's happy and locked in if you ever need him and, and he's still going to be positive on the bench, and you're worried about whether your star player is, is you know, has the right people around him and it feels right about going into competition. So I do. I think it's probably different than it is with players. I think players can, can be a little bit more selfish, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think sometimes that – uh, they're locked in and on what I can do to help my team rather than the coaches locked in and what can I do to help the team in general as a, as a big group. And going from an assistant coach to a head coach in the NBA, uh, you, you had to do that twice. Yeah. What's that shift like, you know, moving over one seat or what, whatever you want to call it. It's tough. It's a, it's a tough move because uh, when you're an assistant coach, uh, you've got, a relationship with all the players that doesn't factor in a whole lot about whether you're going to play or not, whether you're going to be a starter, whether you're going to come off the bench, whether you're going to get minutes. Um, and it, it kind of changes the amount of time that you have dialogue. As an assistant coach, you're working with guys on a daily basis. You, you can chat with them. You can get a good feel for where they're at. And as soon as you become a head coach, it, all, all of a sudden there's five guys that like you, all right? And those are the five that are on the floor. And then the other guys are like waiting and wondering when, when it's going to be their chance. And I, and I think you can, you, know, you can still build relationships with guys, but there, there's a little bit of a difference. You're not going to have everybody. And to me, the biggest difference uh, – over it wasn't it wasn't about the I tried to you know you try to have the interpersonal relationships the same way you do because you don't want to change as a person if you change as a person the players figure you out they know who you are um, but I think the biggest thing for me is the time commitment to things that are not basketball meeting with the media three times a day meeting with the season ticket holders meeting with the GM contacting a player's agent um, go, we, on this trip to New York, we've got the sweet holders. On this trip, we've got our sponsors coming on the trip. Uh, you need to come by the dinner and say hello. And it just seemed like it was everything. I remember coaching sometimes, and I was going, man, I get back to the arena after doing a, a meet and greet or something, and my assistants were all fired up about the game plan that they had for the next day. And I was like, man, I miss that. I, that's, what I, that's what I love. I love the X's and O's and the prep. I don't really want to be out there doing all that other stuff. You snuck in and sort of slid this in, and I can't let it go earlier, that, oh, I went and played football for a year. Yeah. What was that about, and what position, and how did that even come to be? Yeah, that's uh, – well, I think it was, it was after the after – I couldn't see playing, like I said, at the time, four years. I couldn't see four years down the road um, uh, playing basketball. I had one year left at university. I thought about transferring so that I could sit out for one, and if I went to a Canadian university, I could – play for two more years which would get me closer to another olympics um but I, I i loved simon fraser and i went back and all my friends were football players and i was training in the weight room with them and they do things on the field and i do i go down on the field and i start running patterns and they go man 
you're pretty, you're athletic and you've got good hands and, you know, I play basketball, you know, and, and then they were like, you should play. So I went and saw the coach and the coach was like, no, we want you to play for sure. And I was like, okay. Um, but they wouldn't let me play on offense because they said the basketball coach world is going to kill us. So you're going to have to play defense. So he taught me the, the coach at the time, Rod Woodward was a great CFL um, defensive back. And so he taught me how to be a cornerback at six and foot four at six foot four. Yes. Try throwing it over top of me. Anyways, um, I played for, I played for the one year and absolutely loved it. And it taught me how to be more aggressive, more physical. Uh, I got drafted by the Calgary Stampeders the same year that I got drafted. So I, at the end of that year, I got drafted by the Calgary Stampeders in the sixth round. And I got drafted by the Los Angeles Lakers in the eighth round. And I was like, man, football in one year and I had six, I got drafted higher than I did in basketball. This is crazy. But uh, training camps were at the same time. And I was like, I was a basketball guy my whole life. So that was it for football. So you never went and played, you never, never went and played pro. No. What was your basketball coach's reaction? Uh, okay. So you're not playing offense, but you're playing defense. What was his reaction? Uh, he, they thought I was crazy, <laughs> but you know, I'm a competitive guy. All the guys that I hung out with were football guys. I wanted to be part of that team. It was a great diversion after having the Olympics taken out from under us. You know, you, wait, you go to bed every day dreaming about the Olympics and, the, and your goal of playing in the Olympics. And all of a sudden, for a, a crazy reason, it's taken away from you. Um, I just needed something else. I needed something else in my life. So I played football. And, and it, it was so different. It was so different. Practices are different. Uh, uh, how much you know, movement you have. But I'll tell you, the juice, when you're a cornerback and the halfback is running, they pull that linebacker. Uh, or, or they pull the guard and he's coming and his eyes are on you. It's like, man, this guy's trying to run me over, but my job is to make him go in and have the safety smack him. And I got to take a hit for the team. And that's what I love. That, that, you know, you take a hit for the team and the guy would try to go around and make a tackle. The guy would cut back. I did my job. It was fun. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. You mentioned do your job. Football just has a lot of do your job. Just stay in your lane, do your job, do it really well and beat your man one-on-one or if you're in a zone, cover your space. And it's interesting as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking like I've worked a lot of high school basketball teams and there are sometimes I'm working with a high school basketball team. I'm like, this kid's playing the wrong sport. Like this kid could transition to go be a running back in football or a cornerback or, you know, a, a tight end. Or it's like, you could just see the movements. And I would always just kind of be like, yeah, you can see they're not going to be good enough to play professional basketball, but they, they could, they could go play football. And, and we see that, right. Tony Gonzalez and Antonio Gates. There's, there's, there's always these guys that are transitioning. And I have a couple of buddies who are uh, NFL agents and, I, I, I've been a big college basketball guy for a while. And at one point I watched a ton of college basketball and I used to give them names. I'm like, all right, these are the guys that ain't going to make it in the NBA. Uh, yeah. They could maybe play overseas, but they, these guys, I'm telling you, they, they have the athleticism. They could go play football. Um, yeah. There's no question. It's crazy. Football guys love to play hoops too. Like the off season, uh, Simon Fraser was, it was uh, the nickname at Simon Fraser was the factory because Simon Fraser was an NAIA school, so all the kids, the Canadian kids went there. They played American football and got good enough. And then, of course, you have to have so many Canadians on CFL teams. So all the Simon Fraser kids got drafted. It was called the factory because you knew you were going to play pro football. Uh, and, but they all came back in the offseason. All they wanted to do was hoop, which is fun. 
Well, it's interesting. My buddy that that connected us, Cody, is Australian rules football, and you see now there are guys that are D one basketball players who are getting picked up to go play rugby or Australian rules football because they just have that build and that athleticism, and um, they can learn the game, and, and <laughs> it, it works. Um, there's something that's intrigued me that I haven't asked you about on on any of our calls in the past. Is you've got these two tattoos on your arm, um, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you have other tattoos, but I've always yeah. just been yeah. Yeah, so walk me through your tattoos. I'm just curious about them. Um, okay, the first two on um, the biceps there, one of them is called Dream Big Dreams. And uh, it has to do with a, a Canadian who was a friend of mine um, and, and, my, and my first ever national team coach. His name was Jack Donahue. And he, he, he would always talk about, you know, setting goals and having these dreams and write it down and see it and put it where you can see it and remind yourself of it all the time. And uh, he had such a big influence on me. He coached me on the national team for all 11 years that I played. Um, and then Terry Fox was a guy who ran across the Canada on one leg. He was diagnosed with cancer and he wanted to raise money. So he started this journey by running across Canada. He would do a marathon a day. And um, that was another one of his was, you know, I, I can't let the, the struggling happen that I'm seeing in the cancer wards. And if every Canadian would give me $1, I could raise $22 million. Well, Canada fell in love with this guy. And he happened to be a friend of mine before he even started the run. But uh, he ended up uh, dying halfway through the run uh, because cancer has spread to the rest of his body. But to, in his name today in Canada, they've raised over $500 million in cancer research. Uh, and he's, uh, he's like in our passport. They're talking about him being on the $5 bill and so on. He's just like a, a, this great guy. But there, that was two, the, both of those, Jack Donahue and Terry Fox told, said dream big dreams. And then the other one is more about uh, no day but today. It comes from the, the musical Rent, uh, which I had seen lots of times. And, it, you know, and it just so many things like, you know, it, that relate to sport. Yesterday is a canceled check. Tomorrow is a promissory note. Today is cash in hand. No day but today. Today is what matters. Yesterday we lost. Let's forget about it. We got to move forward. Learn from those mistakes. Tomorrow, we can't get caught up in what's ahead of us. And again, I think this goes to what I mentioned earlier. We focus on the process. You know, the outcomes will take care of themselves. And so those are the two there. Uh, The two on the forearms are just like, uh, this is a pass and this is a dribble and it's just like a basketball thing. And Tyson Chandler, when, uh, when I coached in Phoenix had this line on there and I was like, man, I like that. I'm going to get one, but I turned it into a little bit more of a basketball motive after that. So these ones have a little less meaning than the other two. It's oh, awesome stuff. At my wedding, my brothers were co-best men and, uh, they, they spoke and, and talked relatively nice about me Uh, and at the end of it they told a story that when i was a kid growing up when rent was the show it was the hamilton Mm -hmm. and i had the double cds they were these orange cds and there was you know what i'm talking about right those doubles Uh the double cds and the orange cds and i knew every word to rent and by the way as like a 10 year old 12 year old you have no idea what these words mean like yeah. i went and watched it as an adult and i'm like oh this is a little different than like what yeah. i'm just singing it in the shower but i was a singer i'm still a singer uh unfortunately for everybody that comes in contact with me and uh and you know when i was about 13 years old i got these speakers and these big speakers as a gift and so i would play the rent 
CDs just over and over in our house. And we didn't live in that big of a house. It was like a rambler. So my brother's room was right next to mine and we shared a bathroom anyway. So at the wedding, they, they, they said I would just sing it over and over again and annoy the hell out of them. And so after their speech, they had the band play 525,600 minutes oh, man. and I danced, yeah. uh, danced with my wife. Um, so anyway, I didn't know we were both rent fanatics, but oh, um, big fanatic, fanatic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny that like I was worth the Vancouver Grizzlies when I, we went to New York to play the Knicks and I was walking through the street and it's, I had never been to a musical and I was like, I don't want to see this, you know, and, and the guy's going, you want a ticket? And I was like, well, I'm getting scammed. I'm getting scammed. He's going, no, I got a ticket. And I said, well, how much? He goes, I'm giving you a ticket. And I'm going, there's something going on here. What's going on? He goes, no, my son was coming in. He got stuck in traffic. He goes, the problem is I got a ticket, but you got to sit with my wife and I. And I was like, okay, it can't be all that bad. And he, I, so I sat with them. And honestly, I was like in the eighth row in the middle in the first time I saw it. And I walked out of there going, and I honestly, I think I've seen it 17 times. Because every time we'd go back to play the Knicks or, or uh, a game in New York, I'd, I'd, go, I'd run down and, and buy a ticket and see if I could see the show again. It's just one of those things that I just love. Is that your favorite song, No Day But Today, or is there another one? Um, yeah, I like No Day But Today. Um, uh, my favorite one's Glory. Oh, one Glory, song. yeah, right off the bat, yeah. I, no. that's, that's my, I mean, that's my I, I'm, I'm like you, though. December 24th, 9 p.m. From here on in, I shoot without a script. See if anything. I mean, I got to the point we where can it go. Was, Instead of the old shit. First shot, Roger. Tuning the Fender guitar. He hasn't played in a year. I, like it's it's in there somehow, and I don't remember anything. Like my memory, I, I my memory is is weird. But you you put rent on, and I can just let it. It's it's yeah. it's in there somewhere. So yeah. we'll spare everybody. Maybe we'll do it uh, offline. <laughs> and we'll, just, we'll just geek out and nerd out together. And I I remember seeing it a few years ago, and it is interesting also that a lot of what they're talking about in it are, are still things. Obviously, the AIDS epidemic is is not as big of a deal in our in our country. Um, but a lot of the sort of social justice uh, yeah. conversations that they're having are, are completely relevant. And then the music, I think people don't realize them infusing rock music in the way that they did. And um, yeah. it, it was just amazing. And I, it's kind of timeless. It's, it's still, yeah, I, you're right. Still does there's, it. there's so many messages about it today that are factor in today's society. And, and how Jonathan Larson knew that at the time. And then for him to die on opening night, I just like, it was, there's so many crazy, crazy things about it. Well, I didn't know we were going to go talk about rent, but I'm, <laughs> I'm glad we did. And I love these conversations because you never know what you're going to learn and where you're going to go. Um, Jay, if people want to learn more about what you're up to um, or, or anything that you're passionate about, if there's a nonprofit you like or involved with, um, I'm just going to give you a megaphone. Is there anything you want to promote or, or, or sort of shout out? No, I'm not really. Actually, I have a, I have a, I wrote a book this past year and I didn't really want to do it, but uh, uh, Simon and Schuster approached me and they said, Canada basketball has gone crazy. And you were a part of it as a player and as a coach with all these guys. Um, we need to, we need to have documentation on the history of the game. So uh, I wrote a book called open look uh, and it's about, you know, my, my career through Canadian basketball. So uh, through Simon, Simon and Schuster, and it's, it's, it's kind of a, a take on Canadian basketball and forward by Steve Nash and commentary by uh, Mike Krzyzewski in it. So it, it, it's a, just kind of a, a history of basketball in our country. Why did you do it? You said, I didn't really want to do it. What, what, what was the reasoning for why you, you ended up doing it? 
um, they pushed me to, to do it. Um, and I thought, yeah, Canada basketball is going crazy. And I don't want people to forget where it was. Um, and uh, when I say that, it wasn't in a bad spot. I mean, we, we qualified for the Olympics in 80 and didn't go because of the boycott. The team that went in our place, Brazil, won the bronze medal. In 1984, we lost at the you know, fourth place for, on a bronze, uh, against Yugoslavia, who was all one country at the time, uh, in a real close game. And then in 1988, we finished sixth. So um, we were always in the top part of the world, and we haven't been there since. I mean, uh, 2000, when I coached, we were, we were seventh. Um, but uh, I, I just wanted people to know the history of the, of, of the game and then they can talk to me enough. And I had a guy come in and sit down and I, I actually enjoyed it. We, we rehashed some old memories that he had following the team. He was a reporter, uh, Mike Grange, and uh, he, he followed the team as a kid. So he was excited about writing it. And it was fun to sit back and rehash everything. It seems like Canadians are especially proud to be Canadian. Why do you think that is? Where do you think that comes from? What's your perspective on that? That's a good question. I don't know. I did, but you're right. There's a, there's a sense of pride. And, uh, um, you know, I've always, I always joke with some of, some of our players. I said, if we win everything, what do you get? And he goes, a ring, a ring. And I said, yeah. I said, that's the problem. In Canada, if we win, we get a cup. And a cup is something that everybody wins. A ring is personal, but the cup we share it. Like we all have it. And it, and it's it's uh, to me the, I don't know. It just seems like that is what we were grown and we we were driven to try to achieve was something that came together. And it, and the country is it, it's a it's a it's a, such a unique country. I never even thought about that. So the Washington Capitals won the Stanley Cup a couple of years ago, and you know they they were notorious for going around the city with the yeah. cup, <laughs> jumping in fountains, going to bars. Um, but there is something unique about a, the Stanley cup and there's no, I regardless of what's going on in hockey, I will always watch the final game of the Stanley cup yeah. to watch them pick it up at the end and carry it around the rink and the emotion that comes with that. It's such a special, it's unlike anything I think in, in sports, but I've never thought about like the, the significance or the, the thought of a cup versus a ring. And obviously there's you know, Larry O'Brien yeah. trophy and, right. you know, but Super Bowl trophy. That. Yeah. But, nobody but, says that. I won the Larry O'Brien. I want to win the Larry ring. O'Brien. No, they want, I want a ring. And, and, and you know what? There's, so, there's unique things. I mean, I know you uh, from Washington when they, they all get the, they all get to take the cup for a day. Right. And they can do anything they want with it. I mean, it's been in swimming pools and they, they bathe babies in it. Do you know the one thing you can't do with it? Only people who have won it are the only ones who can put it above their head. Mm. So the guy that is with everybody all the time, they watch and they'll let you take a drink. But if anybody tries to put it over their head, that's when he intervenes, which I think is a great thing. And I never knew that. Other, another quick story on hockey is really interesting because when I was coaching the Raptors, they were redoing our locker room. So we shared the room with the Leafs and we were both practicing in the arena at the time. And they have the big circle in the middle of the floor with the Toronto Maple Leaf logo. And do not step on it. Do not. And our guys had no idea because the Raptor logo in our locker room, they marched across that all the time. I go to the shower, go to the training room, they march across. They, one guy walks across and two guys wanted to fight him. They go, get off that. And they go, what are you, what are you talking about? No, you do not step on the logo. 
hockey hockey's got some stuff man you go out to dinner with a bunch of hockey guys you better watch your shoes because they're gonna i forget what they call it but they take butter and they basically like uh oh. they'll take butter and, and they get you a shoes and if they get you everyone just starts clapping their their glasses oh, and they yeah. look down and you're you've got butter on your shoes hockey guys are a different breed and uh, yeah, i'm yeah. sure your brother has some some stories they they're a fun breed but i think what i love about hockey what i love about football is that team aspect of it um yes. i think hockey more so than football only because football has a division offense defense that yeah. is that that does exist but hockey other than the goalie there's this like just i've got your back we're together we're in the foxhole um and you know i've just had so much respect for hockey and 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 love watching it and when i was a kid i wanted to play ice hockey and uh i grew up in in maryland outside dc my best friend was the player of the year in our area. He was a great hockey player, which isn't the player of the year and where you grew up. But um, my parents wouldn't let me do it because you had to wake up at like five in the morning, get rink time. And I was one of three boys. They were like, no, we're not doing that. We got two others that are playing every sport. Uh, so I played roller hockey though. And I played it uh, I played it probably from like sixth grade to 10th grade. Uh, and always loved playing hockey. It's, uh, it's an awesome sport. Um, yeah. Hey Jay, this has been a lot of fun. Great yeah. to get to know you better. I know uh, I'm going to see you next week again, which I'm excited to continue to chat and learn from you. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, I've been on a few calls with you now and your curiosity is outrageous. And uh, the first call I was on, you just kept peppering me with questions and uh, to, to get to where you've gotten to and to work to get to where you've gotten to and still have that growth mindset and still want to learn and, and, and be curious is inspiring. And uh, for me, like that's what I that's what I aspire to. Regardless of where I end up, I want to keep growing, developing, and be a lifelong learner. And it's so clear getting to know you that you are a lifelong learner. And to me, that's like a definition of success, regardless of where you go. Like, are you still learning and growing and developing? And so, uh, it's, and I love your energy. So, like, combining curiosity with energy, like I could tell pretty quickly. Like, oh, he's my type of guy. So, appreciate appreciate both those elements of you for sure. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm a, I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, change happens. I mean, days change, hours change, everything happens and you learn and you move forward and, and we're going to go through change. We've seen a lot of change in basketball. We've seen a lot of change in, in our world and uh, you got to embrace it. You, you got to embrace it. And I'm not one of those guys that's like, oh, this is my way. Or, this is how I coach. But you know what? The game changes all the time and you better be ready to adapt to it. And I think that's what keeps it interesting, not only basketball, but life itself. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. If people want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. Jay, we'll chat again soon. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Brian. Thank you very much, man. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Some guys will miss two or three and they'll start hanging their head and their shoulders will drop. And then you can't perform because you've lost the physical stature that you need to be able to compete. Whereas others, you can tell by the way that they walk that missing two or three doesn't affect them at all. They're still back shoulders up and ready to go. But if you have to correct your posture before you correct your form, then you're gonna be in a heap of trouble. But the great ones, they walk with that arrogance, they walk with that cockiness and that fear like, but I'm here for battle and they walk straight up and down.